1873, Major General Garnet Wolseley was placed in command of British forces about to go to war with the Ashanti Kingdom in modern-day Ghana. For an ambitious young general like Wolseley, and he was only just turning 40 at the time, this was an incredible opportunity to propel his career. It was also an extremely dangerous undertaking. The jungles of Africa were hard to negotiate. The Ashanti had held their own against the British twice before, and the climate and local diseases gave West Africa the nickname the White Man's Grave. There was as much chance of this being Wolsey's professional or even real grave as there was propelling him up the greasy pole in the British Army. So Wolsey decided to meticulously plan for his success. And as part of that plan, he surrounded himself with 35 hand-picked officers who combined experience and bravery with planning and intelligence. They became known as the Ashanti Ring. And the victory they achieved propelled Wolsey's star and with it, many of their own too. And these officers, along with their boss, would dominate many of the wars that Queen Victoria's army fought, especially in Africa. Some of their names are forgotten, others are revered, whilst others are reviled. At least 11 became generals, and three held the Victoria Cross. This is the story of an amazing group of 19th century British army officers, Wolseley's Ashanti Ring. The Ashanti Ring holds some curiosity and even mystique from the bygone days of the British Empire, partly because of the names associated with it, and partly because it was so unusual. You need to remember that until the early 20th century, the British Army didn't have a general staff, unlike, say, the Prussians. As warfare moved into a more industrial period, the days of amateur gentlemen commanding an army were outdated. Nothing showed the British how flawed this policy was, more than their experiences in the Crimean War. And some of the young officers coming out of that war were convinced things needed to change on a whole lot of fronts. One such man was Garnet Wolseley. With no general staff, how were the military expected to properly plan for and then conduct the many wars that a world superpower like the British Empire found themselves being drawn into? That essentially was where the Ashanti Ring fitted into General Wolseley's plans. Not that he saw it as the general staff of the British Army. Indeed, despite being a moderniser, he was never keen on such a concept. But interestingly, he did see the value of gathering a core group of men around him to plan and deliver his own campaigns. Sort of a general staff, but only working on Wolseley's wars. Some had already served with him during his very first campaign he had commanded, the Red River Expedition in Canada. The ring was never a formal structure, and many of these officers served Wolseley for the Ashanti campaign only. However, around a dozen stuck with him on and off for the rest of his and their careers. And it's these officers that I want to focus on for you today. Some of the names are pretty much forgotten except for military history buffs, you know, like you know, Major General Sir John Morris. Others are remembered, although not always for the best reasons, like General George Coley and Redvers Buller spring to mind. Others lived almost boys' own lives, such as Evelyn Wood, who survived being trampled by a giraffe to command a notable victory over the Zulus at Kambula. Others had a major impact on the modernisation of the British Army, such as Henry Brackenbury, who transformed the role of military intelligence. And then there was General Sir William Butler, a thinking soldier who was ever-present in all of Wolseley's campaigns, and who was removed as Commander-in-Chief in South Africa shortly before the Boer War in 1899 for controversially saying that a war with the Boers would be a calamity. Little known fact is that he was also married to the artist Elizabeth Thompson, who, as Lady Butler, painted some of the most iconic events in Victorian military history. Now, 
quite frankly, trying to combine all of their stories into one episode would last, well, well over an hour. So what I'll do is break the story down into bite-sized chunks. Three fascinating and towering figures will get their own episode each. Field Marshal Sir Evelyn Wood VC, Sir William Butler, and General Sir Redvers Buller VC. They're all coming very soon, but for this part of the story, I want to shed some light on those members whose names have faded into history, but who had a massive impact on the British Army in the 19th century. This is just a very simple overview of Wolseley's inner circle of his Ashanti ring. Ever since he'd served in the Crimean War, Wolseley had kept a little black book in which he recorded the names of officers who impressed him. Some he noted for their bravery, some for their experience, others because they were clever, and others because they were hard-working. All traits that Wolseley admired in his efforts to modernise the British Army. One Crimean War veteran was the future General Sir Archibald Allison. Seven years Wolseley's senior, in fact he was the oldest member of his inner circle, Allison had been born in Edinburgh in 1826 and had studied at both Glasgow and Edinburgh universities before being commissioned in the 72nd Regiment of Foot, later the Seaforth Highlanders, in 1846. Wolseley met him during the siege of Sevastopol during the Crimean War. Shortly afterwards, Allison also saw active service in India during the Sepoy Rebellion, where he lost his arm at the relief of Lucknow. With this level of experience, he was just the sort of officer that Wolseley wanted with him in West Africa fighting the mighty Ashanti. He was placed in command of the British Brigade, the three battalions drawn from the regular British Army for this campaign. In 1882, he was once again united with Wolseley as the latter prepared to invade Egypt to counter the nationalist revolt led by the Egyptian army officer, Urabi Pasha. That Egyptian campaign in 1882 was to see all bar two of the Ashanti war veterans gather around Wolseley once more. Allison was given command of the Highland Brigade, who led the charge on the Egyptian positions at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir. The victory there was Wolseley's crowning glory in his career, not that anyone really knew that at the time of course, after all Sir Garnet was only 49 years old. Following that victory, General Sir Archibald Allison was placed in command of the regular British army stationed in Egypt, to all intents and purposes an army of occupation. By now, closing in on 60 years of age, his appointment as General Officer Commanding in Egypt was short-lived, and by 1883 he'd returned to England as General Officer Commanding the Aldershot District. He died in 1907 at the age of 81, and is buried in his native city of Edinburgh. One officer whom Wolseley always rated was George Pomfrey Colley. Those of you who've watched my video or listened to my podcast on the Battle of Majuba will know all about Colley. A highly talented Irishman from County Kildare, Collie had made such an impression when he applied to join the army that he was granted a commission without the usual need to pay for it. He later attended Staff College and managed to complete the course in double quick time and still topped the list of officers. When Wolseley requested that he join him on the Ashanti campaign, Collie had just finished writing a 60-page entry on the army for the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Collie was the sort of organised thinking officer that Wolseley appreciated as much as the hard-as-nails men like Evelyn Wood or Redvers Buller. During the campaign in West Africa, Collie was in command of the transport system. His complete overhaul of the invasion routes, supply routes and the system for ferrying wounded men back to the ships lying off the coast were acknowledged by Wolseley as playing a major part in the jungle campaign's success. Ultimately, his career was to end in disaster both for the British Army and for Collie himself. During the First Anglo-Boer War in 1881, he personally commanded the British forces at the Battle of Majuba, 
Now, I've recently told this story, so I won't go over it all again. Suffice to say, the British suffered a massive defeat, and Coley was killed in the battle. Despite the defeat at Majuba, Wolseley always lamented his loss, and saw Colley as one of the Ashanti ring of officers who really could have modernised the British army. It was an opinion he also held of one of the youngest members of the ring, and the only major player in the inner circle not to have served in the Ashanti War, Major General Herbert Stuart. Stuart was born in Hampshire in 1843, and rather like Colley, he possessed brains as well as brawn, although arguably he had a better balance between the two. Despite joining the army in 1863, he'd also been called to the bar. In other words, he was able to practice as a lawyer. That's an interesting combination, definitely brains as well as brawn. Graduating from Staff College, he proceeded to South Africa serving in the Zulu War and in another campaign against the Pendi tribe, during which he was marked down as an officer with a promising future. Now that's just the sort of mark that Walsley would take notice of. He'd served Collie as his Chief of Staff at Majuba and had actually been captured by the Boers. A year later, Walsley brought him into his ring for the campaign against Rabi Pasha in Egypt. Stuart commanded the cavalry division at the Battle of Tel El Kabir and after the British victory had galloped to Cairo where he had accepted the surrender of the Egyptian capital. Promoted to brevet colonel, the 40-year-old Stuart was kept on by Wolseley for the Nile expedition to rescue Charles Gordon in Khartoum. Initially serving under General Graham in the Suakin expedition on the Sudanese Red Sea coast, Stuart fought at the battles of El Teb and Tamai before joining Wolseley for the main advance from Egypt up the Nile to Khartoum. With time running out for Gordon, Wolseley placed Stuart in charge of a principally mounted flying column tasked with cutting across the desert to try and save Gordon. Having crossed the desert, Stuart was nearing the Nile when he ran into the Mahdi's army at Abu Klir. The ensuing Battle of Abu Klir was one of the high points in this campaign and one which I've devoted a whole episode to in the past. In a close-run battle, Stuart was able to drive off the Mahdist forces. The following day, he continued his advance and the British once more came under sniper fire from the Sudanese enemy. And as fate would have it, Stuart was mortally wounded. Somewhat ironic, that the two officers that Wolsey saw with the most potential were the two who were killed in action. Two further Ashanti ring officers taking high profiles in the Egyptian and Sudanese campaigns were Australian-born Lieutenant General Sir Baker Creed Russell and General John Carstairs McNeil. During the Ashanti War, Russell, along with Sir Evelyn Wood, was responsible for raising a regiment of local African soldiers for the campaign. He was reunited with Wolsey for the Egyptian campaign in 1882 where he was given command of the 1st Cavalry Brigade. He commanded the cavalry in the famous Moonlight Charge at the Battle of Kassassin, as well as the British victory at Tel El Kabir. John Carstairs McNeil was one of only three officers who served with Wolseley in his Red River Expedition, the Ashanti War, the Egyptian Campaign and the Sudanese War, the others being William Butler and Redvers Buller. Born two years before Wolseley in 1831, he was 19 when he survived a notorious shipwreck. The paddle steamer, Orion, was sailing between Liverpool and Glasgow when she hit some submerged rocks. 41 of the 200 people on board drowned, including both of his parents and two of his sisters. Having survived the wrecking, John McNeil went on to study at St Andrews University before enrolling at the East India Company Military Seminary at Addiscombe. This establishment near Croydon in South London was the training school for future officers in the East India Company's army. 
Until the mutiny of Indian troops leading to the wider revolt in 1857, India was not controlled by the British government, but by a private trading company, the East India Company. Whilst regular British troops were stationed in the subcontinent, the vast bulk of military manpower was provided by the East India Company's own army, the officers of which were trained at Addiscombe, where young McNeil now found himself. A career in the East India Company army had several advantages over one in the regular British army. The first was that, unlike the British army, you didn't have to purchase a commission. Secondly, the generous salaries and the low cost of living meant that the officers enjoyed a more luxurious lifestyle at considerably less cost than their British army counterparts. Hence why, during the late 18th and into the 19th century, you often see young men of limited means joining the Indian army and then moving across to the British army when they had either accumulated the funds to purchase a commission or had built a reputation that gained them a move on merit. That's what McNeil would do. But first he served his time with the 12th Bengal Native Infantry. During the 1857-58 revolt, he fought at the capture of Lucknow, where he was promoted to a brevet major. And in 1861, he jumped ship, so to speak, joining the 107th Regiment of Foot, later the Royal Sussex Regiment, in the regular British Army. And it was with the 107th that he was to be awarded the Victoria Cross. In 1864, during the New Zealand War, he rode to the rescue of a trooper who had fallen from his horse during an ambush by 50 Maori warriors. He was one of three members of Wolseley's Ashanti Ring to be awarded Britain's highest medal for valour. In case you're wondering who the other two are, the answer is Evelyn Wood and Redvers Buller, both of whom are being covered in follow-up episodes. His career now took him to Canada, where McNeil was the military secretary to the first Governor-General of the New Dominion. And it was whilst there that the Red River Rebellion under Louis Riel broke out. McNeil immediately offered his services to the man tasked with ending the rebellion, the young Garnet Walsley. And Walsley was only too delighted to have an experienced soldier and VC recipient on his staff. Three years later, McNeil rejoined Walsley in the Ashanti Ring as his chief of staff. During this war in the jungles of West Africa, McNeil was shot through the arm. With his tendons and arm muscles severely damaged, he was sent to the coast for medical attention and was subsequently evacuated to England. He would never be able to use his hand effectively again. Despite that injury, he remained in the army and in 1882 he was once more called upon to join Walsley and the rest of the ring in the Egypt campaign. He was to remain in North Africa to participate in the attempts to rescue General Charles Gordon in Khartoum. Actually, his claim to fame was commanding the British troops at the Battle of Tofrek during the second Suakin expedition in eastern Sudan in 1885. Taken by surprise by the Mahdi's forces, McNeil was able to restore the British position and drive off the attack, although not without losing 70 British soldiers killed and over 130 wounded. General Wolseley exonerated his Ashanti Ring member of any responsibility for the near debacle and instead blamed his superior in eastern Sudan, General Graham, who incidentally wasn't a member of the Ashanti Ring, for not supplying enough mounted troops. Despite that exoneration, the Battle of Tofrek was McNeil's last action. He retired in 1890 and died back in his native Argyle in 1904. The last key member of the Ashanti Ring that I want to focus on today is a man who can be regarded as one of the founding fathers of British military intelligence, Henry Brackenbury. Four years Wolseley's junior, Brackenbury was born in Lincolnshire in 1837. Educated initially at Eton and then at the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich, he was commissioned in 1856. 
Almost immediately, he saw action in the Sepoy Mutiny in India. Later on, he was posted to observe the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. Shortly afterwards, he met Wolseley in London and impressed the general enough to be invited to join his staff in the Ashanti War. There, he served Wolseley as his military secretary. Brackenbury then moved on to the prestigious role of private secretary to the Viceroy of India, before becoming British military attaché at her embassy in Paris, followed by a posting to Ireland. When the Egyptian campaign commenced, he jumped at the chance to be reunited with Wolseley. However, he had fallen out with his senior commanders in Ireland, and they refused his request for a transfer. Nevertheless, Brackenbury had managed to redeem himself enough to be allowed to join Wolseley on the Nile expedition to rescue Gordon in 1884. Here, he was to serve as Chief of Staff to General Earl, who was in command of the River Column. Brackenbury, who had now developed a fashionable lisp and so referred to himself as Wackenbury, an interesting fashion choice by the Victorians, saw action at the Battle of Kirkaban in 1885. A year later, he was promoted to the rank of Major General and appointed Director of Military Intelligence. Now seen as an essential part of any military around the world, military intelligence was still at this time, in the British Army, in its infancy, having only been established in the previous decade. Brackenbury can take the credit for moving the British Army's intelligence function away from simply collecting information towards a more planning role that we would recognise today. Admittedly, it was still a very small department. By 1899, it consisted of just 13 officers for the whole British Army. Nevertheless, by then the Director of Military Intelligence was reporting directly to the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, Field Marshal Lord Wolseley himself. It's worth noting that despite his small team, they had, just prior to the Boer War breaking out, produced a highly accurate report highlighting the Boer level of preparedness and their ability to wage the forthcoming war against the British Empire. In recognition for his work, he was promoted to full general and in 1899, appointed Director General of Ordnance, in which capacity he was responsible for supplying the army down there in the Boer War in South Africa. In his later years, Brackenry became a mentor for a young officer, who despite joining the army as a private, the old intelligence chief saw as a man with high potential. And he was right. William Robertson would go on to become a field marshal during World War I. General Henry Brackenbury didn't live to see that dying shortly before the war itself broke out in 1914, whilst in the south of France. The Ashanti Ring was always an unofficial grouping of officers around Wolseley. Members came and went, although some were ever present. Over the years, younger, up-and-coming officers were poured into the circle, men like Herbert Stewart, who I've already mentioned. Others like John Morris, who came to Wolseley's attention when he won a prize for an essay on how Britain could best meet a continental European army in open field. That in itself is an impressive prize to win. Even more impressive because he beat the entry written by Wolseley himself. Having served with Wolseley in the Ashanti War, the Zulu War and the Egyptian Campaign where he was appointed Adjutant General, he finished his career as a Major General and a Professor of Military History at Staff College. The other youngster worth mentioning was Hugh McCulmott, who despite being the baby of the Ashanti Ring, he was only 28 at the time of that campaign, served with Wolsey back in Canada as well as in Egypt and the Nile expeditions where he was Wolseley's ADC. He went on to briefly serve as a member of parliament. He was the last of the core inner circle to die, passing away in 1924. In an age when Britain still did not have a general staff, the Ashanti Ring was probably the closest thing they had to it. The problem was 
that because there was no examination or interview process, it was the gift of Wolseley alone. If you crossed him, or didn't impress him, or simply he never came across you, you were missed. Not surprisingly, it bred accusations of being a clique, and Wolseley's closest rivals, such as Field Marshal Lord Roberts in India, assembled his own rival groups of officers. Whilst many of the ring rose to high rank, few were able to be successful senior commanders in their own right. You've already heard about Collie at Majuba, and you're going to hear about Redvers Buller in the Boer War in the next episode. That said, every member of the core Ashanti ring became a general of some description, and whatever their faults, they had a huge impact on the Victorian army and on Britain's military history. Coming soon, I'll be telling you the stories about Ashanti Ring members and Zulu war heroes, Redvers Buller and Field Marshals Evelyn Wood VC, not forgetting Sir William Butler. So make sure you subscribe to my channel or join my newsletter so you don't miss them. Click on the links. And don't forget to check out all my other videos. There are over a hundred of them on my channel now. Thanks for your support. Keep well, and I'll see you very soon.